our lips will surely still repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me, because that truly is our only hope. If we were to say anything else, we would not enjoy eternity with you. But through the gospel and through the gift of faith that you have given to us, we can say that we have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. God, and it's that union with your Son that is our confidence and our hope, not just now, Lord, but into eternity. Father, would you encourage our hearts tonight, help our, our souls to be freshly fed with truth as we consider that hope of being unified with Jesus Christ. God, may he be honored and glorified and made much of in our lives and even tonight, Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You can have a seat, and as you do, go ahead and take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. For a moment, Prince Hamlet sounded a lot like the Apostle Paul. Uh, Prince Hamlet, if you can reach back to your early high school English class memories, is that Shakespearean character who finds himself in a castle. Hamlet takes place mostly in this stronghold that is situated on the eastern coast of Denmark in a town called Elsinore, or so Sparknotes tells me. Um, I, I was supposed to read Hamlet, but I don't think I did. But what goes down in this castle in Elsinore is absolutely wild. A scene after scene after scene is this uh, epic unfolding of drama. There are brothers killing brothers. There are people seeking vengeance with violence and with murder, and they're using poisoned knives to do it. It's crazy. There's tragic romance, tragic loss. The whole time, there's this threat of a, of a military invasion on this castle in Elsinore. And our character, Hamlet, finds himself in the middle of all of it. And it's in this chaos and this turbulence and this mayhem of life that Hamlet finds himself full of anxiety and anger and even fear. And then he utters those famous words, to be or not to be? That is the question. And it's a question that's actually not unlike the one Paul asks in Philippians 1. Last week, we found the Apostle Paul asking the same question, life or death, to be or not to be. But that's where the similarities stop between Hamlet and Paul. You see, Hamlet did sound like Paul for a moment, but it was a very, very brief moment because Hamlet's question was driven by fear and uncertainty and anxiety. He felt like he was being forced to choose between two bad things. It was for him a lose-lose. He was trying to figure out which was worse, the, the hardship and the struggle of life or the grave. And in this famous soliloquy that opens with that famous line, Hamlet finds himself stuck because as he goes on to weigh the suffering of life in one hand and death in the other, Hamlet is faced with the paralyzing reality that he had no clue what death would bring. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 1 could not be any more different. Remember the context. Paul is in prison, and this imprisonment is threatening his life. On the outside of the prison, there are people slandering his name, and Paul, up to this point, has suffered severe persecution, extensive abuse, hardship, and suffering, and cruelty were, were marks, were constants in Paul's life. And when Paul compares that life, full of suffering in one hand, and death in the other, he struggles too. 
But Paul struggles because to him, they are both so desirable. And so it begs the question, what makes Hamlet and Paul so similar, yet so totally different? How can both feel the the real hardship and the real pressures of life, and yet come to totally opposite conclusions? One man driven to despair, and the other man driven to rejoice. Well, the answer is in Philippians 1.21. And so if you haven't turned there already, turn your Bibles to Philippians 1 and read with me that famous verse, verse 21. Paul writes, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. How can the same question of life versus death be met with opposite conclusions? Because one of those men had Jesus Christ. As a Bruin sitting here in, in Broad Hall in 2023, uh, you might not think that you have a whole lot in common with Hamlet or with the Apostle Paul, but the suffering and the complexity of life is going to hit you, and it's going to hit you fast and it's going to hit you hard if it hasn't already. And whether or not you would like to acknowledge it, the reality of death is present. It's something common to every single man and every single woman in this universe. Even if you're in the prime of your life here at UCLA, death is real. And so if we are to understand our lives rightly, and if we are to understand our deaths rightly, we must look to Jesus Christ. That's what Paul does in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Martin Lloyd-Jones says of this verse, We stand here face to face with one of the sublimest and greatest statements ever made, even by this mighty apostle. Turns out Matt Ng and Martin Lloyd-Jones bear a striking resemblance. Uh, Lloyd-Jones is not an Asian man, and Matt Ng is not balding, and he doesn't wear a scary black robe when he preaches, but when it comes to Philippians 1.21, they share a a similar sentiment, and and after talking about it with Matt this past week, I have to agree. Uh, There is so, so much to benefit from in this verse, and and so tonight we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're just going to spend an extra week dwelling on the richness of this one single verse, but from a slightly different perspective than last week. We're going to approach this verse with a more topical lens and work our way through some of the most important theology, some of the most important doctrine and biblical truth that enables Paul to write these words. And I'm so excited to just dive deeper and deeper and deeper into this verse because it's not only rich with theology, it's also so intensely applicable. And I'd say especially applicable for college students. Some of you here may have known Jesus for quite a while now. Um, But here in college, you're realizing that there's a lot of things that are competing for your attention. Uh, There's more and more things competing for your priority. There's grades and career and finances and relationships, and they're all asking for your attention. They're all asking for your affection. For others, maybe you're trying to decide who this Jesus is. Maybe you're trying to decide what you believe about him and what that means for your future, not just on this earth, but forever. And for many of you, I'd say probably most of you, these four years are the first time you are making your faith your own. Uh, They're the first time that you're not just going to church because that's what your family has always done. Maybe this is the first time that you are individually making decisions that are the pattern and practice of your Christian life. Uh, You're setting up spiritual habits that are going to last you until the day you die here in college. And this verse has the truth packed into it that is able to guide you through such a formative and critical time in your life. 
And so as we look at this verse together, we're just going to consider two simple headings, and they're copied straight from the verse. First is going to be to live is Christ, and the second is going to be to die is gain. And for each of these statements, we're going to be asking and answering two questions. First, we're going to ask, how can Paul say this? And then we're going to ask, what does it look like? Each point under these headings is going to seek to answer those questions. It's going to seek to answer what truths in Scripture enable Paul to make such a statement. And what does that statement look like when we live it out based on that scriptural truth? It's my prayer that these truths lived out will enable you to echo the Apostle Paul when he writes Philippians 1.21 to make Christ your all every day of your life, today and that final day when you finally face death. Okay, first, to live is Christ. How can Paul say this? How can Paul say to live is Christ? First, because Christ is the source of life. Christ is the source of life. Paul understands his life to be Christ because without Christ, he would be dead. Turn over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 is no doubt a familiar passage to you, I'm sure, but I want you to let these verses hit you freshly tonight. Ephesians chapter 2, read verse 1 in the first half of verse 2 with me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The diagnosis for humanity without Christ is not sick. Uh, It's not a coma. It's not a weak pulse. It is dead. The picture is a lifeless corpse. The picture is is not a hospital, but the morgue. But look ahead to verse 4. Paul writes, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. And you can't miss this part. Made us alive together with Christ. It is only the life of Christ that provides life for the Christian. You see, the gospel, the good news is not that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus dying on the cross would be terrible news unless he did not stay dead. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But then he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The implication is that our faith is therefore not futile, but it is effective. And we are therefore no longer in our sins, but we are made alive together with Christ. So how can Paul say that to live is Christ? Because Christ is alive. Christ is resurrected. And therefore, we can trust in him to resurrect our souls. It's either Christ who gives you life or you are not alive. You are nothing more than a spiritual corpse without Christ. And it's Paul's theology of spiritual depravity that helps him to see that life at its very core is Christ because there is no life apart from Christ. That's the truth of Ephesians 2. That's the truth of 1 Corinthians 15. And that is the truth of Philippians 1, that Christ gives life. So what are the implications here? Uh, How should knowing that Christ is the source of life affect you today? Paul has more answers for us. Go back to Philippians 1 in your Bibles and look at verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of, of the gospel of Christ. There is so much to be said about how this truth should affect your life, but this verse 
sums it up pretty well. Think about it this way. If an athlete got a full-ride scholarship to play basketball for UCLA, he can't play for USC, right? Amen. If that engineering firm pays for your master's degree, they expect you to get the degree, and then they expect you to use that degree for their company. And so when Christ gives us life, we need to use it on his terms. So in Paul's words, the way we live our lives needs to be worthy of the gospel. Not to earn the gospel, not to earn life, but to respond to it. And so GOC, are you misusing the gift of life that Jesus has given you? Are you trying to pull a fast one on Christ and receive his grace to, to resurrect your soul, but then to use your life in a different way than he intends you to? Look, UCLA would notice immediately if their star basketball scholarship player played even one single minute as a Trojan. They would know. Christ has given you life, and he knows when you are presuming on his grace. Maybe for you, it's, it's about your career. And I don't mean, you know, what your career is necessarily. I mean, don't go, like, selling drugs or something. But I think most of you are here at UCLA because you want to work in a lab, or because you want to work in an office, or in a hospital, or an art studio. And that's all great. But what happens when you graduate and, and then you're trying to decide between job offers or trying to decide between schools? Uh, genuinely, honestly, what factors are going to sway your decision the most strongly? Is it prestige? What school is most prestigious? Is it the biggest paycheck? Which job is going to give you the most money? Best upward mobility? What about fruitful labor in the gospel? What about a healthy church fellowship and, and godly church leaders that are going to be able to watch over your soul? And don't get me wrong, I, I'm not saying that upward mobility is at odds with faithful ministry. I'm not saying that a big paycheck is mutually exclusive with a healthy church. But I want to ask you, which one of those things tugs at your desire more? Which one of those things influences your thinking first? Our pastor, Austin Duncan, likes to say that life is gift, not gain. Life is gift, not gain. Are you trying to get something out of life and leverage it to, to, to make yourself bigger? Or are you spending it to honor Christ? Christ is the one who gives you your life. And so honoring Christ must be your first consideration when you think about how to use your life. Maybe for you it's not a career. Maybe for you it's a relationship. Is Christ the non-negotiable factor when you think about dating? Is your interest in that guy or that girl based on what Christ says is beautiful and not the world. And again, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to say you should date, and I'm not trying to say you shouldn't date. I dated. I'm a fan of dating. It worked for me. I got the biggest W of my life because of dating. <laughs> Amen. Dating is, is a good thing sometimes. But, but I am saying that even dating, something that is so personal, something that is so often emotional, and something that can honestly be funny sometimes, still falls under the category of your life. And it needs to be discerned very, very carefully on Christ's terms. Maybe it's not a career or dating for you. Maybe it's that sin that you are just so tired of battling. Maybe it's that sin that has so frequently and so constantly plagued your mind and you just feel spent trying to fight it. You just feel tired and weary and you feel defeated. 
Maybe, maybe it was harder than it ever was this past winter break to fight that sin. If that's you, I want you to know that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to, to pay for your sins with his own blood and to cleanse you from that sin, then your life has been given to you by Christ. And nothing can undo that. Nothing can take that away. Know that Jesus Christ is the source of your life and you have an advocate that pleads for you every day before a holy God. Your own effort, your own labor, and even tears over that one sin will not earn you anything. It will not earn you life. Only Christ is the source of life. And because Christ has granted you that life in grace, you have got to stay in the fight. You've got to fight that sin. Press on in your battle with sin because Christ has already defeated it. Confess that sin. God already knows about it. Pray about it. Ask God to help you hate that sin. Ask him to help you to just be appalled by it and to be disgusted by it and go to extreme measures to kill that sin because Christ has given you life and you must honor that gift. Christ is the source of our life and that gift of grace must be honored. Christ is the source of life, but that's not all. And there is another reason that Paul can say to him to live is Christ, and it's because Christ is also the substance of life. Christ is the substance of life. And what I mean by that is having gone from dead to living in the gospel, every aspect of new life is to be defined by Christ. Another way to say this is that Christ is the fabric of life. Uh, My hoodie is cotton. Uh, Those shoes are leather. That chair is plastic. The Christian life is Christ. Every bit of the Christian's life is made up of, consists of, Jesus Christ. To borrow the words of Paul again, this means that Christ is preeminent. Preeminent. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1 with me. It's right after Philippians. Colossians chapter 1. I want to show you more of what I mean. Matt referenced this verse last week, but it's worth our attention here. Look at the second half of verse 18 of Colossians 1. Paul writes, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. When Paul says that phrase, the firstborn from the dead, he's speaking of Jesus' final and eternal resurrection. And then he says that, or so that, in everything, he, Jesus, might be preeminent. And so why was Jesus raised from the dead? To prove himself as the Son of God? Yes. Uh, To save sinners? Yes. To fulfill the scriptures? Yes. But also, so that in everything, he might be preeminent. Preeminent is a word that means first. Some translations say, so that in everything he might come to have first place. Jesus' resurrection and eternal life is so that he would be honored as a priority, as first place in everything, and that includes our lives. Christian, your salvation is not about you. Your salvation is about the glory of Jesus Christ. He must be first. Now, if you're like me, when you hear something like, Jesus must be first in your life, or Jesus must be your priority, you can kind of think like, okay, that's like the most I grew up in Sunday school answer ever, right? Like, yes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is first, Jesus is first. I'll try to, try to do my devos in the morning. I'll try harder to do my devos in the morning. Uh, but Colossians 1.18 speaks to something so much more expansive than that. Something so much more comprehensive than that. Look closely again at the verse. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything 
in everything he might be preeminent. So should Jesus be at the top of your priority list? Absolutely. But Christ should also be first in every other item on that priority list. Maybe your list looks something like this, right? You wake up, you got your Devo, you go to class, then you go play basketball, then you got a meetup, then you study, then you got another meetup. Having Devo at the top of that list is awesome. Spending time with Jesus as the first priority of your day is awesome, but is Christ the priority when you close your Bible and go to class? Is Christ the priority when you have that meetup with that person, or when you sit down to study, or when you go to that IM game? Prioritizing Christ in your life does not just mean putting him first on your priority list of the day, and then moving on and hoping that maybe if you have some free time, you can spend more time with Jesus. No, it's about making everything in your life revolve around Christ. Listen to one pastor on this idea. When you go to work, your job calls for your constant attendance every day and all the day. But do not neglect God in your work. Work in the presence of God. Open the doors of your shop with the thought that you are on God's appointed road of obedience. See every customer or client as a person sent by divine providence. Perform every transaction in justice as if God's holy eye were upon you. That's speaking mostly to a working man or a working woman, but the idea is so helpful for you as you study here at UCLA. Listen to that quote again, but I'm going to read it with some Bruinness in it. Your class calls for your constant attendance every day and all the day. But do not neglect God in your class. Study in the presence of God. Walk through the doors of your lecture hall with the thought that you are on God's appointed road of obedience. See every classmate and every professor as a person sent by divine providence. Do every assignment and take every test in justice as if God's holy eye were upon you. I know school can seem ordinary and monotonous, but no matter how ordinary life can seem, the Christian always has a reason to be zealous for making Christ preeminent in everything he does. That's what Paul's heart was when a hundred different things were coming at him in life. He was zealous for Christ when he preached before a church, and he was zealous for Christ when he was sitting in a prison cell. Lloyd-Jones says of this idea, Paul is no longer a victim of circumstance and chance. Christ has delivered him from the tyranny of what might happen. There is no coincidence when it comes to Christ being preeminent. There is only and always a meaningful opportunity to honor Christ in everything that you do. Another specific example I want to give you in addition to your approach to school is your approach to ministry. You might say, well, of course Christ comes first in Christian ministry. But I got to tell you, as I thought about this idea, I was extremely, extremely humbled. And I found myself needing to repent from sin. My Bruin days are over. <laughs> um, I'm an old and weird, nerdy seminarian now. I spend literally almost every day at church. Um, my quizzes, my papers, and my tests are about the Bible uh, I get to lead singing about Jesus Christ, and I can still forget Christ. I can still strive to perform well on a test just to get that good grade. I can still strive to even prepare a sermon, but only so that I don't look like a fool in front of you guys. I can still sing truth about Jesus and be worried about what people are thinking about me. 
you know what I mean, right? It's the same thing as wanting to sound mature in front of your small group. Or wanting to see your name on that small group leader list. Or wanting to be well thought of for your insightful comments during that discussion. Maybe it's wanting to be known as super hardworking for the church, even though you're super busy with everything else. The problem with all of that is that even in what we call ministry, we can make our own desires and our own ambitions and our own reputations first. But if you are a Christian, then Christ must be first. He must be concerned about his reputation, his will, his desires, and his plans. And so from the top of your priority list to the bottom, you must understand that Christ is to be honored as first in all of it. That's what it means, and that's what it looks like for Christ to be the substance or the fabric of your life as a Christian. And it's that understanding that Paul can say to live is Christ, and there is one more reason I want you to consider for how he can make that statement. It's pretty related to this last one, but there is a nuance that I want to capture, and it's that Christ is the purpose of life. Christ is the purpose of life. Let me ask you a question. How do you define success? Uh, What for you is a successful relationship or a successful career or a successful church even? The answer is actually the same for all of those things. I know that working in a lab and going to church can sometimes feel as disconnected as possible, but a successful day in the lab is the same as a successful day at church. And it's the same as a successful day at the beach. And don't get me wrong, it it will look different. John MacArthur is not going to show up to your lab. But if Christ is honored, that's success. Will Christ being honored look different in different contexts? Absolutely. Don't go baptizing people in the pool on 424's roof. That's, That's not what you do. But you still can honor Christ in any and every context. And if Christ is honored, that defines success. You see, when we think about Christ as coming first in every aspect of life, it's not just a question of, okay, does Christ approve of this or not? That's a good and helpful question to ask. But you should also ask, am I living purposefully and intentionally for Christ's glory? Is knowing Christ or making Christ known or honoring Christ my goal in doing whatever it is that I'm doing. Now, think about how you feel when things don't go your way. When you get frustrated or angry or sad or, or disappointed when you get that grade back. When the outcome just isn't what you wanted it to be. Are those emotions because Christ wasn't honored? Or are those emotions because you had set your own agenda for this aspect of your life? Because you have a reason to rejoice if you honored Christ but didn't accomplish what the world says is success. Think about the context of Philippians again. Paul's imprisoned. Some would say that is a failed missionary journey. He got caught, thrown in jail, and he's not out there preaching anymore. But in Philippians 1.12, when he thinks about his imprisonment, he says, great, that advances the gospel because you're hearing about it. Listen to Philippians 1.15 and following. Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Would you count slander and affliction on top of imprisonment as success? Well, if Christ is proclaimed, then yes. There's a lot that could be said here, but what I want to highlight is the simplicity of the Christian life. The simplicity of it. I want to highlight that at the end of the day, when you boil it down to its most basic components, 
Christianity is very simple. Success for us is very simple. If Christ is honored, then the purpose of life is fulfilled. Your life, your life still has meaning. It still has value and it still has dignity even if you are working the most monotonous job in the world. Even if you are studying for the most boring class in the world because you still have an opportunity to honor Jesus. And in God's economy, that is precious. And that is valuable. So when you set out for the day, what are you hoping to accomplish? What is your goal? Paul says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim. <laughs> that is bad grammar, but really good theology. It's bad grammar, but good theology. Because Paul is intentionally reminding us what comes first. The reason our hearts beat and the reason we have breath in our lungs is to make much of Jesus Christ. And if he is honored and if he is proclaimed in both word and in deed, then you are fulfilling the purpose of your existence. That's why everything surrounding Philippians 121 is not just so Christ-centered, but it's also so other-centered. Because for Paul, living and gospel labor were one and the same. Other people hearing about the truth of Jesus Christ and growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ was synonymous with life for Paul because that's how he defined success in his life, by contributing to the increase of Jesus Christ in this world. And John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. What a blueprint for life and ministry. Christ has given us life. Christ is present in and the priority of every part of our life. And Christ is the ultimate purpose of our lives. And that led Paul to say, for to me, to live is Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on and then Paul says, in the second half, it's verse 21, Philippians 1, to die is gain. And that's the second statement we want to consider. To die is gain. Remember, we're trying to answer those two questions. How can Paul say that? And what does that look like lived out? So how can Paul say to die is gain? I'll give you two reasons, but let's just start with the first. Number one, it's because creation is falling. Creation is is falling. Paul understands death to be gain because life takes place in a fallen world. No matter how spiritually mature or how spiritually bankrupt you are, you carry out your life in the midst of a fallen world burdened by sin. And I want to give you kind of maybe two categories to think about the fallenness of this world. One of them is our own fallenness, and we're going to get there later. But first I want you to consider the fallenness of creation at large, of everything. Now think about how unpeaceful this world is. Now think about how nothing is in harmony with, with other things. Uh, grizzly bears and sharks and eagles. Uh, those things are trying to kill other things. And those things will die because... This world is stained by sin, and other things are going to try to kill them. That is not the design of the garden. That is not how God created this world. We're coming up on three years now since COVID hit. Three years now since viruses started killing people. And it's not how it should be. This is not the original perfect design of God for creation. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to show you more of Paul's theology so we can sort of understand this. Romans 8. Look at verse 22 with me. Paul writes in Romans 8, 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
I think it would serve you well, especially as, as young college students, to understand more of this world through the lens that the whole of creation is fallen. When hurricanes hit, and when fires rage on, and when creatures and life die, we should hear that as creation groaning. We should hear that as an intense and desperate groan for relief. But look again at Romans 8, and now read verse 23 with me. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul understands that everything around him is fallen, and so is he. Not only is there something blatantly and obviously wrong about the world that he observes, there is something seriously and obviously wrong with himself. What Paul is touching on here is the doctrine of total depravity. It's a key doctrine in the Reformation, this concept of the total depravity of man. And a misconception, a common misconception about this doctrine is that it means that you are as sinful as you can possibly be. But that is, that is not what total depravity teaches. You can still go murder someone and you would be more sinful. Total depravity doesn't speak to you being as sinful as possible. It speaks to every part of you in your totality being stained by and affected by sin to some degree. Your thinking is fallen. Your emotions are fallen. Even your body is fallen because it is all affected by and it's often participating in sin. And so not only is the, the world groaning for relief, but so are Christians. Because the bodies we live in now are stained and affected by sin. Look just one chapter up in Romans 7 and look at verse 24. Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That is a desperate and an urgent plea to finally be done with fighting sin. And that's why down in Romans 8.23, Paul says we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. GOC, one day you will be entirely changed. The hope that you have to look forward to is comprehensive. Every aspect of fallenness is going to be done away with. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth and it will be full of perfect peace and perfect harmony. There will be no death. There will be no tears. There will be no shame because there will be no sin. The, the realm of existence will have never been touched by the disease of sin. God will create a new heaven and a new earth and a new you. Paul says in Philippians 3 that your lowly body will be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body, fit for heaven, fit for eternity, sinless. And so Paul understands death as gain because he knows what's on the other side of this world's groanings, as if it were in labor. He knows that life is coming that true and perfect life is on its way. And there's a lot of ways that this should affect how we live, but I, I just want to mention one thing, and I want to be as clear as I can. Paul does not see death as an opportunity to escape the fallenness of this world. The context of Philippians makes that abundantly clear, right? Because Paul rejoices in the opportunity that he has to make Christ known in this fallen world. Paul understands the bliss of heaven and it causes him to desire to stay on earth so that more people might know Jesus Christ. So that more people might be able to join Christ and him in that heavenly eternal bliss. The fallenness of creation simply reminds Paul that this is not home. 
This is not his resting place. It reminds him that this place will be destroyed. And so when you consider that, when you consider that this place will be done away with, when you consider that there is a better life to gain, we should follow Paul's example. And we should say, well, while I'm alive, I am going to live for the progress and the joy of faith. That's Philippians 1.25. Paul says, I know that I will remain and continue for your progress and your joy in the faith, knowing that there is something to gain, something to be had in death through faith, should motivate you to serve this world, not escape it. You have the hope of life beyond death, and the world needs that hope too. Paul can say to die is gain because this current world is fallen but the next one won't be. There's another reason I want to give you for how Paul can say to die is gain, and it's because faith is not final. Paul can say to die is gain because faith is not final. And I'll be brief here, but I cannot stress enough the weight and the glory and the beauty of this truth. We talk a lot about faith, don't we? One of the core doctrines of Christianity is that faith alone in Christ alone saves. The word faith appears more than 400 times in Scripture. There, there literally might be nothing, nothing more important to talk about than your faith. There might be nothing more important for you to settle in your life than your faith. But one day, faith will disappear. One day, faith will be gone. Turn to Hebrews 11 with me. Hebrews chapter 11 is a famous chapter in the Bible, and it's often called the Hall of Faith. But verse 1 proves that faith is not final. Read Hebrews 11 one with me. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The conviction of things not seen. One day you will no longer need faith in Jesus because one day you will see Jesus. G-O-C, you will see with your own two eyes, face to face, the source of your life. One day you will see face to face the preeminent one, you will see with full and with perfect clarity the one to whom this whole universe bows in reverence and in awe. And that means you won't need faith because your faith will be sight. Everything that made faith so difficult in this life will be gone. You will never wonder or doubt again. You will never again succumb to that pull of sin. Faith will be no more because faith will be turned to sight. And when you see Jesus, and when you see him as he is, nothing, and I mean nothing, will be able to peel your eyes off of his beauty and his glory and his majesty. No amount of temptation could hold a candle to the beauty of Jesus Christ. GOC, live your lives knowing that your faith is not final. Persevere in faith so that one day you won't need it because in death you will gain an unhindered and unobstructed view of Christ that is the culmination of your faith. So can you say with Paul that if God so chooses that I would die today, I would be at peace knowing that my faith is finally, finally going to be turned to sight. If you're here today, and this is all new to you, maybe you've heard it before, or maybe you just don't think it's for you, I just want to say, truly, I am very, very glad you are here. I am so grateful to God that he brought you here. But I do have just one request of you. 
All I would ask of you is to think about your death for a few minutes tonight. And I mean, seriously, take out your phone and use a timer. Maybe set five minutes to think about your death. Because when you think about your death, five minutes can feel like forever. Think about your death and ask yourself, are you ready to die? I don't know if you believe in God, but I know that you believe that death is real. I know you've seen it. Hundreds and thousands of people die every day. It might come expected, it might come unexpected, but one day you will die and you have to face the reality that that's coming for you. And you have to ask the question, am I ready? You got to hear this. Death will rob you of just about everything. Death will rob you of everything you hold dearly. It'll rob you of your money. It'll rob you of your status and your reputation. It'll rob you of your career. Death will bring the loss of everything. It'll bring the loss of your relationships that you love and all the things in this world that you love. And for those without Christ, death brings uncountable, eternal loss in hell forever. And this happens to hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people every day when they die without having known Christ. But if you would look to Jesus, if you would look to Jesus as your only hope in death, if you would believe in Jesus as the Son of God, if you would believe and trust in him that he takes away the sins of the world by paying for them on the cross, and if you would submit your life to his authority and turn from your sin, then death will bring you no loss at all. Death will bring you gain because you will see the holy and the gracious God of the universe face to face, and you will live with him in eternal perfection and peace forever. I urge you, please, consider Christ the Son of God today. I think Hamlet got it wrong. To be or not to be is actually not the question, because we don't get to decide that. We don't get to decide if we're going to live or die. And ultimately, that is not of utmost importance to us. The better question is, if I am to live, and if I am to die, will I honor Christ in both? Do you see, Christ will be honored in your faith, by your faith in him. Christ will be honored in your trust in him, and one day that faith will be rewarded with sight. So place your faith in Jesus. Submit to his authority and honor Christ both in life and in death.